I've seen some of you guys walk around here with no shoes. Some of you got shorts on. Some of you don't have jackets. My feet are freezing. I'm a California boy, and then I moved to Tennessee. It's just not cold there either. I mean, when it snows there, we shut down for like a month because we don't know what to do with it. But uh, it's a good thing we don't base manliness on whether you're cold or not, huh? All right. This is going to be a little bit different. Uh, we're going to be in a couple of passages. If you uh, turn with me to Titus chapter 3, we'll be in Titus chapter 3, and then after that we'll be in Second Peter chapter 1. So this session is, what is pietism? Uh, this is just interesting for me. How many of you have uh, know what pietism is? Raise your hand. Like, I actually know what pietism is. All right, awesome. Uh, it is the theology of eating pies. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I remember the first time I heard the word, I had no idea what it meant. And when someone finally described it to me, I didn't understand its significance. And then I spent more time diving down into it, and it has uh, really impacted my life as far as exposing pietism in my life and the habits that I have. So this kind of falls on the heels of what we find our purpose of life in, and definitely in tactics of the deceiver. You know, the last session we looked at, we were more talking about ways in which Satan can get our eyes distracted on things that don't really matter uh, and be comfortable with it. Pietism is the exact opposite of that. Uh, pietists are not lazy. Uh, pietists would never be described as lazy. They would also not be described as passionless. Uh, they would probably even embrace the concept of a warlike mentality that there is much to fight over. And I would say there's probably a lot of pietism in our habits and tactics that we're not even aware of. So let's work on the word here for a little bit. Then we'll understand what it is and then we'll see how it applies. Uh, just to describe piety, piety is a good thing. Another word for piety would be godliness. Anybody opposed to godliness? Because I know where your pastor is and I know he practices church discipline. So go ahead. All right? No, no one's opposed to godliness, right? Uh, we would say piety is the reflection of the nature of God. And so when we think about kindness and meekness and gentleness and, and open to reason, that would be a reflection of someone who's pious, who's, who has an understanding of piety. Pietism is dangerous because it can be the same actions but done for the wrong reasons. This is why pietism is so dangerous. But pietism is what we would call hyperpiety or pietism, piety for the wrong reasons. Uh, the way I would, the, I've had to wrestle with this for so many years, and I think the simplest way for me to describe this before we dive into this is that piety, or pietism is doing godliness, doing good things for the wrong reason, ultimately is what it ends up being. Now, it's been around for a while. Uh, it's actually a historical movement. Uh, there's a lot of um, denominations and and men that are responsible for it, but there's definitely, pietism has its very strong roots in Lutheranism. Uh, a lot of, uh, it comes back out of that of about 300 years ago. Uh, you would also see pietism in um, Methodism with John, John Wesley, uh, with the, the, uh, the, um, uh, some of the tax that he, he brings, and then some of you may have even heard of the Brethren Movement with Alexander Mack. 
And then even for sure, we were talking about this at dinner tonight, the Puritans um, had a lot of uh, writings that were pietistic in nature. When you look at things like Methodism or even Brethren, specifically Methodism, there is a teaching there uh, that's called perfectionism. In other words, after salvation, so Christ brings you by faith alone through grace alone, they definitely get that part right, that you can get to a moment of your obedience that you don't sin anymore. They call it, another way of saying that is, um, they would describe it as like full sanctification or entire sanctification where the whole life comes to a moment where you're just, you're not sinning anymore. Which uh, would be amazing if that was the truth, but it is not (laughs) the truth. Um, And this concept, this push, the reason why it's Methodism, they provide methods that you would use and these methods would provide for you uh, a road, a roadmap for self-discipline uh, that would result in holiness, that would result in obedience. And we're not going to get really into the history of it. If you want to look more into that, uh, you uh, are free to do so. What I really want to talk about is point out the effects of it in our life because it has affected the United States. It has affected a lot of theology worldwide, even, as I said, Puritans that weren't even based here. And you'll see it in the writing. And once it's kind of one of those things that once you see it, you can't unsee it. Anybody uh, see the man in the moon? Anybody see the man? Am I the only one? Has anybody ever seen the man in the moon? Thank you. I just don't even know if you're paying attention to me. Am I speaking <laughs> Chinese right now? <laughs> one of you has seen the man in the moon. Anybody else seen the man in the moon? Google it. No, there's an actual man's face in the moon. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. Like every time I look at the moon, I'm like, there's his face. You can see it. Some of you, there's some people see an Energizer bunny. I don't see that one. <laughs> Whatever. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. <laughs> Worst illustration in history. My friend and I, we got this, right? We know. We know. Once you see pietism, it's hard to unsee because you see it everywhere. And I've had people in my church that once they figure this out, I've had to calm them down because it's like, it's almost like a where's Waldo. Instead of going after what is good, they're kind of shooting down what is bad. And I understand why, because bad theology uh, robs us of true joy and rest in Christ. And so we want to get rid of bad theology. So pietism, what I would say is, it's doing things that aren't necessarily wrong, but you're doing them for the wrong reasons with the wrong expectations. So this is, we're going to start unpacking this a little bit. I'll give you some examples of what pietism looks like. Here's one of the results of pietism. I would say is that it's the place of the gospel. Now, every, everyone here, if, if you've been a part of this church, you would agree that the gospel is the power of God. Amen? The gospel is what saves us. It transforms us from death to life. I mean, it's awesome and glorious. But we see the gospel as elementary. It's the starting point. It's what gets you in the journey. It's kind of like, anybody, um, as, a, as a man, if you're a real man, you'll have this feeling I do. It's like celebrating birthdays. I'm like, come on, guys, let's grow up, you know, let's be men. You're, so, but you're celebrating the day that you came out of your mom? I'm like, come on now, this is weird, Right? But it, it, that's how we kind of view the gospel. It's like it's our birthday, and it's, it's an important day, and it's significant. But then let's move on to what we call the meat of the word. 
right? The meat of the, the real meat and potatoes. That's the result of pietism. Because there's no way you read the New Testament and you discover that Paul moved on from the gospel. Paul wouldn't say things like the gospel is the power of God and then say, now that we've got the power of God, let's set it on the shelf and get to the meat and potatoes, which is you doing something. But that's the result of it. But we like this kind of thing. It it comes out in our preaching, right? It comes out in our preaching to where instead of hearing about the law and the law tells us, John, you have failed. There is no righteousness within you. And it so creates a desert in you that you start to suffocate underneath the weight of the law. And you say, dear pastor, are you going to lead me to the gospel? Because without the gospel, I have no hope for this life. Not salvation, but life. So when Paul writes a letter to the Corinthian church that has just lost their way, what does he say? I want to come and preach nothing to you except for Christ and him crucified. It's not that they needed to be saved again. It's because they had forgotten what they'd heard. I know I told you to turn to, yeah, look at with me at uh, Titus chapter 3. I want you to hear how Paul understands that we do not move on from the gospel. Look at Titus chapter 3 and verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior, of, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by washing of regeneration and the renewal of, his, of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then you know what he says next? Now that's good. Let's get to the meat and potatoes. That's not what he says. This next verse, highlight it, underline it, tattoo it, whatever you want to do. Don't forget it. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Why would he insist on it if it was something that we moved on from? There's a negative side to this as well. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to expand both of these here, but I just want to use them as a reference point as we begin. 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll look at verse 3 here in a minute. Part of the result of pietism, if you know anything about revivalism and the history of revivalism with uh, the man by Charles Finney, uh, Charles Finney uh, was really famous for believing that he could convince people to believe in the Bible by methods. And so he would use a lot of passion and he would use a lot of um, zeal and they had tactics in these. This is where the altar call and the anxious bench came from. But what happened after that is that after one made the commitment to follow Jesus, he would use fiery, fear-based preaching to keep them in line. This is where abolition came from. And there was a lot of tactics that, in, not abolition, but... Uh, Uh, I'll think of it in a minute. Uh, But the point of it was, is that preaching went from proclaiming the gospel and the good news for you on your behalf to preaching fear, anxiety, and the do's and don'ts. And every sermon was now that if you do not perform in this way, we're going to call into question 
your salvation. Uh, I grew up in revivalism. I think I have been saved seven times and I've been baptized three times. So I'm sure one of them took at some point. I think I'm okay, right? But that's the result of revivalism is that, oh yeah, amen brother, he's got it over here. So that's the result of revivalism is that uh, my performance caused me, so my actions, every time I got in trouble, I would just get saved and it was like, we would celebrate and they go put me in the, I figured it out. I was like, oh, do bad things get saved, baptized, clean slate. It's awesome. Then my dad figured it out too and that didn't work anymore. But the point of it is, is that your performance became the the indicator of whether or not you were right with God. And so if you were living this string of of life to where, oh wait, it's obvious that you are not a believer because look look at the way of your life. There's no way that And so preaching became more about performance-based. Grace was the starting point, but the law and legalism became, and we would never call it legalism because every, have you ever met someone who's a proud legalist? Anybody. I've never met anybody that says, I am a proud legalist. No one, no one likes the title, right? But we use its tactics. So when Peter is worried about someone who is not obeying, he's like, all right, there's, uh, there's a disconnect here. <laughs> you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. I want you to pay close attention to how Peter sets this up. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Stop and look up here for a moment. Whose power? His power. This is so important. It's important that you notice what his power is touching. He says this, to not only your life, but what else? Godliness. Just contemplate that for a second. His divine power granted you godliness. That's fascinating. We have to then define what is godliness. We'll get to that. Through the knowledge of him who called to us to his own glory and excellence, by which, these, by, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, these promises that we are to hear over and over again, so that through these promises we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Now hear this. He just said everything from your life to your sanctification, godliness, to the end of your life, your glorification, is all been can we change the word granted to gifted? Has been by his power gifted to you. So you're literally sitting there holding everything you need from the beginning to end. There's nothing left for you to do. Because if there's something left for you to do, is that a gift? No, it's not a gift. It's not that he gifted you your salvation and now you work on your sanctification. He gifted you your salvation and your sanctification. I love how Ezekiel says this, right? He says he pulls out your heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh, brings you to life. And then he says, and he causes you to walk in his ways. He, not you, you don't cause yourself to walk in his ways. So what, by the way, if you're sitting here thinking, well, maybe I'm not a Christian because I'm definitely not walking in the way of God all the time. Peter has a solution to that because I definitely don't. You can interview my wife and she definitely questions my salvation. She says this. No, no, she says, Paul Peter says this. <laughs> That's definitely a Freudian slip. Verse five. 
Listen to the motivation for good works, okay? This is so opposite of pietism. For, the, for this very reason, the, first, the previous two verses, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. How many of you would like to be around someone who does that? I would. I want them to be my best friend. They're kind and patient and loving and affectionate. I'm in on that. <laughs> then he says this. For if, these, for if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Ineffective and unfruitful in what? This is what pietism does. Ineffective and unfruitful in proving that you're a true believer. What it does is it says good works are the evidences of your faith. Good works are designed to prove to God that you actually are his child. Pietism actually says it this way too. If you want the blessings and favor of God, if you want your day to go well, and you don't want to be, end up broken down or lose your job, then you better be obeying. Otherwise, you're going to be ineffective and unfruitful in proving to God you deserve his blessings. Anybody know of a really famous guy in Texas who's got a great smile and big hair? Thank you. He preaches this way because it resonates with the heart of our flesh. If you obey and you're kind and you do your part, what's the promise? God will do his part. If you're faithful to him, God will be faithful to you. God's calling you to be faithful to him because he has so many blessings waiting for you. Now, we love to criticize Mr. Osteen. At least, I hope you guys do. We love to criticize Mr. Osteen. But we do the same thing. How many of you have been down on yourself when you give in to temptation or you fall or you have a bad day and you equate your bad day with your performance? Oh man, this is probably God coming after me because I didn't read my Bible this morning. Oh, this is God probably coming after me because I didn't pray long enough this morning or whatever it is that you want to put in there. We equate a spiritual act with the result of a bad day. Here's what's fascinating. He is not talking about ineffective and unfruitful because I want you to look at every single one of these fruits he's saying add to your faith. Those fruits are not this effective in this way. God is not looking for us to be uh, virtue and patient with him. Every single one of those commands are this direction, right? They're outward. Our brothers and sisters need to see the reflection of our faith because it benefits them. Brilliant quote by Luther. Luther says, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. Think about every fruit of the Spirit. Meekness, gentleness, patience, long-suffering. I love how someone tells me that they can read their Bible by themselves and apply it. And I'm like, are you supposed to be patient with yourself? <laughs> are you supposed to be loving to yourself? Long, no, those are, we receive, right? We love others. What is, what is it that John says, right? We love, right? We're loving others. We love, why? Because he first loved us, right? It's, it's a receiving and reflecting. So he's saying, when you are practicing these qualities, you're actually effectively demonstrating what? The divine granted gift you have received. Uh, salt of the earth, Right? 
light in darkness. It reflects who we are. Not because we're gaining something, it's because we are something. I love how Paul says, and just write this down in the margins if you want, Ephesians chapter four, uh, Paul says, um, he says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What does he say next? Anybody wanna take a guess? Unless you've memorized it, you can't say it. What does he say next? What's a, what's a worthy call? What's a worthy walk look like? You know what we always think right away? We think, oh, it's godliness, right? Or it's the absence of sin. Paul says, when you walk in a way that reflects the adoption of your, of your father, he says, with meekness and gentleness and patience, eager to maintain the bond of unity in the church. Isn't that fascinating? It makes sense. When you realize who you are, your identity in Christ, the response to that identity is not, oh, I need to do this so I can get something back from God. He says, you live in reflection of who you are. In other words, you love others the way that God has loved you. So what he says here, if you're doing these things, you become effective, right? But what happens when we're not doing them? Does he question our salvation? Look at verse eight. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted, I would like to say self-focused, right? Uh, if you're nearsighted, you can't see the person standing in front of you, right? You're this way. You're looking at yourself. Whoever lacks these qualities so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. What, can we, what word can we use there to sum up that paragraph? Forgot what? The gospel. <laughs> we don't move on from the gospel. Peter says it's the thing that keeps you effective. The gospel is the motivating factor. I mean, how many passages do we need to go to? You see it in Titus. Titus literally says, insist on these things. The very next verse, he says, be diligent to do good works. Why? Because we're insisting on the gospel. It's the reflection of who we are. And the moment we find our hearts wandering, we don't need do's and don'ts. We don't need fear tactics. Uh, do you see any fear in here? Is, is he doing this? No, what is he saying? He's saying, dear, dear child, do you not remember what he gave you? How? Let me, let me word it this way. When you think about his divine power, we're gonna, we're gonna leave this world, are we taking anything with us? No. So the, the, what matters most is what happens in the next life. That's, that's what matters. He's like, everything that happens in the next life, it's completely <coughs> taken care of. You cannot get more forgiveness. You cannot get more of his love. And you cannot get more of his inheritance. You're getting Jesus' inheritance. I think God's going to give Jesus a really good inheritance, in my opinion. So you're gold, right? When he says lay up treasures in heaven, he doesn't mean you're adding to it. The concept of it is your heart is in the treasure that's already been given to you. Lay your heart there. Let it rest there, right? 
The point of it is, is that the moment you take your eyes off of who you are and what you've received, and he says, the great promises, we turn them selfishly in on ourselves, and we start worrying about ourselves. And selfishness causes you to be blind so that you aren't being loving. So pietism fixed this. Pietism sounds really spiritual. But the part about pietism is, you know what they, they, they leave out? They leave out the gospel down at the end, and they say, all right, you want to be effective? You need to discipline yourself. You need to be afraid that if you're not doing these works, that you might not be a Christian. You might not be a believer. If you're not effective in obeying God in godliness, it's either the results of a lack of effort or the Holy Spirit really isn't in you. Now, John, uh, James says that. Yeah, does he? Or are we misapplying James and are we abusing James? James is actually dealing with a crowd, and I, I uh, preached through the whole book. It was fascinating how much gospel is in James. You guys realize James, the half-brother of Jesus, denied Jesus his whole life? The guy got grace. He's like, yeah, after Jesus rose from the grave is when I figured it out. I think I could be patient with people who hadn't figured it out yet. It's dripping with gospel. But he's angry because he's saying this, you're ineffective. You're ineffective. And if you're saying your gospel produces what I'm seeing, you don't have the gospel right. It's not the actions it's their claim is the point. I could say it this way. James is literally saying, you have the wrong gospel. You have the wrong gospel, which is a big offense. No one wants to hear that. So what you're going to start hearing is that instead of preaching that points to Christ and the sufficiency of Christ and all that Christ has done for us and how glorious and wonderful he is as the means for our obedience, preaching sounds more like this. It's exacting and threatening. You better obey God or else something bad is going to happen. You're going to lose something or you're probably not going to be a true Christian. It completely robs the believer of the hope that they're supposed to have. I grew up underneath this kind of preaching is why I felt the need to get saved over and over again instead of, John, you're wandering. Let me show you how you're blind. And the gospel opens your eyes to sight. Instead, anybody grow up um, watching Thief in the Night, Left Behind series? Just me? Thank you. Is this the Baptist church that you're afraid if you raise your hand, you're gonna be Pentecostal? Is that what's happening here? You know, so I'll raise your hands, okay. <laughs> I can remember watching this, right? And then like the youth pastor comes in and kills the light and everybody screams and like, oh, we're all gonna die and go to hell because you know we haven't been living how we're supposed to be living. And so I show up to church because I'm afraid of God. I'm afraid of him. What does John say? Perfect love makes you afraid. No. Casts out all fear. It sounds right. It's like uh, fear is not what causes me to want to obey my God. It's his love and affection for me. But pietism does the exact opposite. This is where you get fiery preaching. Fire, it's not fiery preaching to the sinner. 
who needs to repent and run to Jesus for salvation. I'm okay with that. Give them the law, man. Remind them that you want to save yourself on your own without Christ. It's not bad news. It's called eternal death. (laughs) But then we take that same tactic and we use it in the church because we want the church to be holy. I'm convinced from Ephesians 4, Titus 3, and 2 Peter 1 that the way to holiness is a deeper understanding and a healthy diet of the gospel, not more fear and law. Finish this phrase. This is the power of God unto salvation. What? This blank is the power of God. What is it? The gospel. You know what we put in there instead? Pietism puts the law. They put the law there. Obedience, dedication, fervor. One of the things that happens when you do this, the Christian life becomes about how serious you are, how fervent you are. How many of you have um, got up for your morning devotions or quiet time or whatever you want to title it and you spent 30 minutes reading your Bible and you close it and you go, I don't even can't remember what book I was reading. And immediately you're like, man, there must be something wrong with me. And then you begin to question your affection for God and whether God's happy with you or pleased with you. And then your tire blows out, right? And then you get the results that you have prosthetic cancer. Whatever, you start going down the list and it's like, man, it's because my affections for God have wavered. Man, I, I, I should have not spent five minutes in prayer. I should have spent 30 minutes in prayer. Where, where is that in Scripture? His divine power has granted to you all things. You cannot get more of His love and protection than you already have. You're basically saying your God is so sadistic that he bases his approval of you based on your performance and you are incapable of performing enough for him to accept it. It says this, by this God will not, unless you have this, God will not accept you. What is it? By faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Now, faith is this weird abstract thing that we don't really, do you guys know what, I would not be standing here today if it wasn't for what? (laughs) A plane right? I can have all the faith in the world. I believe I'm going to make it to Detroit. I really believe it. And I'm passionate about it. And I'm going to tell the world about it. I believe I'll make it. But if that faith isn't put in something that actually can do it, what's wrong with my faith? It's of no value. Faith does not save us. It's the object of our faith. What pietism does is it puts the passion on you. How passionate you are, how emotional you are, how dedicated you are is the guarantee that you are the child of God. No, I am not standing here today because I'm a very passionate person believing I could get here. I'm standing here today because I used an object that was powerful enough to get me here efficiently. So you begin to realize it's not my passion. It's not my fervor that carries me along. It's his divine promises that never fail. Romans 8, right? 
What can separate you from the love of God? Well, a cold and distant heart. Nothing. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. I I was thinking about this the other day. Um, Tim, I'm not picking on you because this is true for all pastors, okay? Uh, Can you tell me in great detail what the last five sermons Tim preached? Unless you're like this massive note taker. You just named the title. But can you tell me in great detail what he said? You ever stop and wonder about that? Like, I used to get upset because congregants, I'm like, why do I spend hours and all this time putting these sermons together no one even cares to remember them? Then it dawned on me. What does Hebrews say? Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. Why would he say that? Because we are sinful, wretched people who are beat up every week by Satan's tactics. And we need to be insistent on remembering where our hope lies. It's a brilliant tactic of Satan because what he does is he convinces us if I work hard enough, I try hard enough, I put enough effort in, then I will be safe and God will be pleased with me and I can be assured. Put it to you this way. Your obedience does not guarantee your salvation. Jesus does. You really want to stand at the end of your life and stand before God and God says, uh, so why are you here in my presence? Well, because I obeyed you. (laughs) Now, as a good Baptist, we wouldn't say that, but practically that's how we live, right? The reason why we are called to gather every single week is because we are frail people who often forget and are blinded and we need to be reminded again and again and again of the power of the gospel so that it liberates us from our flesh. It liberates us from this lie that we have to perform well enough for God to accept us. It liberates us from all of those lies till we stand in the presence of God saying, he loves me as a sinner. I love how Paul says it. Such were some of you. It's not that they weren't sinning anymore. It's just not how they're identified. I had this great question asked to me this week. Do you guys ever wonder why 1 John calls you to confess your sin? If all of my sins, my past, present, and future sins have been, um, have they been forgiven? Do you guys believe that? Past, present, future sins will not be held accountable for them. Then why are you called to confess your sins? You ever think about that? Sometimes we just do things without thinking about it. Because confession is the act of dependence. Every time I sin, I confess it to my father because I'm reminded it is him that cleanses me and it's not my performance. How many of you have said this? You you have fallen flat on your face and you are making, God, I promise I'll never do that again. And then you put all these, right, come on now, you guys have all done it. God, I promise I'll never, instead of running to your father to receive from him grace and mercy that he says with boldness, right, Hebrews, boldness, run into my throne room in a time of need, by the way, I can't think of that when I don't need it, and I will give you mercy and grace. No, what do we do? I'm gonna clean it up, I'm gonna get disciplined, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get this together, I'm gonna prove to you, God, that I mean business and I'm never going to do that sin again. That's not what he says. He says, child, come to me. I am faithful and just 
to cleanse you from your sin. You cannot cleanse yourself from your sin, but I can. I'm sorry, I'm a little excited. I didn't mean to yell at you. But you can't cleanse yourself, guys, but we do. And then, oh, here's the result of, of, of pietism. We become self-righteous. Oh, man, we look at people and we become judgmental. It's horrendous. Pietism just absolutely percolates and broods two results. It either crushes the weak sinner so badly they feel like they're going to give up, but they have no joy and no hope, and they're ineffective. They're not helping anybody. They're not loving anybody. They're not showing anybody patience. And then what does the self-righteous person do in Jesus' illustration? Oh, Lord, I am so thankful I am not like this man who can't seem to get over his problem. That man isn't walking by faith. What is he walking in? His own righteousness. Paul and Jesus have the strongest words to self-righteous people. Stand in the strength of the Lord is not our own righteousness. This is why you cannot please him without faith. Because the faith is in Christ, not in your obedience. Now, some of you are standing up here saying, John, you're sounding like an antinomian. No, I want you to obey. It's right there in the text. You, you should obey. But why are you obeying? You're obeying because it reflects what you are. You're a child that has no need. You guys know you can't die. Death is interesting to life. So you can't lose your life. That's why Paul says, lay it down. It's all good. It's fine. Let it go. You can't lose God's affection, there's nothing you can do that will come. You know, we all, there's something in with us. We want our fathers to love us. And my dad was my best friend. I loved his embrace. I loved it when he complimented me. I played sports more for my dad's approval than I did for anything else. I just loved to know that he acknowledged me. <laughs> we think God is excited about us based on our, our performance. Really? Did God choose to refrain his love towards Peter based upon Peter's performance? No. <laughs> Guys, I want you to think about the first pastor in the New Testament, Peter. <laughs> this, you got it? It's, it's so ironic. The first pastor, a few days before, he gets up and preaches and 3,000 people are saved. Denied Jesus three times. <laughs> and God's like, I'm just making a connection here. I think it's interesting. 3,000 people are saved by a man who's so weak. In his own strength, he walked away from God. And he says, Peter, I love you. That's what it looks like, Peter, to walk in your own strength. Unreal. See, we don't think about Peter in that way. There's like, like 10 years in between there's not 10 years in between Peter's denial and Christ's It's a few months. Maybe, what, 60 days at most? So if your pastor stood up and says, I no longer believe in God, and then started cussing, saying, see, I don't believe in God, you going to put him back in the pulpit 60 days later? Yes or no? Jesus did. Why? Because it's his divine power. Now listen. There are, we're not Jesus, okay? We're not Jesus. 
There are rules for elders and pastors and teachers, and they're there for a reason, because they need to be men of character, and they need to be men who understand the word of God. But the point of it is, no pastor should ever stand up and consider himself to be so righteous that God is pleased with him. Just because you haven't murdered somebody in 41 years doesn't mean God's like, great job. Well done. So pietism creates these two alternate. For those who are naturally self-righteous, they become very proud of themselves, of what they have accomplished. And those who have a very tender conscience never seem to find hope. And guess what happens to both of them? They're ineffective. Well, this is going to lead us to tomorrow, which is what happened to the doctrine of assurance which then leads us to our last session, which is once we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we find this confidence, we are not blinded by our sins, but we're living inside the gospel, we have full assurance, what do we do with all of that? That's where our purpose comes. That's where our purpose comes. I'll give you a little bit of a tickle for that. That's a bad word men should never use. I'll give you a little insight for that. <laughs> we should not tickle each other. This <laughs> I'll give you a punch in the nose. Uh, Jesus says this to his followers who have felt his love, felt his comfort. He says, gentlemen, the world will seek after a place to live. They're going to seek after clothes and they're going to seek after food he says seek first the kingdom of god and you'll realize all of that stuff isn't going to matter so you got to answer this one question what in the world does it mean to seek first the kingdom of god our next two sessions are going to answer that question let's pray father i'm so thankful that I don't have to stand up here in my own strength and my own might, but I do believe in Paul's words that the gospel is the greatest power in the universe because it's God, your power. I know that that the foolishness of preaching is what you have chosen to bring that message to us, but I pray tonight that those who are weak and afraid and, and are weary, maybe I'm not saved, if they believe, they put their faith in the object of Jesus, then they will be brought home just fine. And the person who is sitting here and is offended because we're not going to accept their obedience and righteousness because it's not enough for God to grant as holy, I pray that they will be comforted with it's okay to be weak. For when we are weak, then we are strong. In Jesus' name.